Welcome to Mason Institute Investigates, a podcast series produced by the Mason Institute funded by the Edinburgh Law School. In each episode, we investigate current national and global issues involving ethics, law and policy in health, medicine and the life sciences. Welcome to our series on current issues in health law and bioethics, sponsored by Edinburgh Law School's Mason Institute and the Centre for Social Ethics and Policy at the University of Manchester. I'm Anne-Marie Farrell, Professor of Medical Jurisprudence at Edinburgh Law School. Today I'm talking with a colleague who is a co-director of the Centre for Social Ethics and Policy at the University of Manchester, Dr Alex, or Alexandra is her full name, but Alex Mullock. Um, and we're talking about her research in the area of the criminal law and its relationship with medicine and specifically in managing harm caused by doctors. So Alex, um, perhaps you can introduce yourself, but also uh, tell us a bit about the research that you've been doing generally in the area. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, so I'm Alex Mullock. I'm a senior lecturer in medical law at the University of Manchester within the Centre for Social Ethics and Policy, which I um, co-direct at the moment with my colleague, Dr. Sarah Devani. And so today I'm going to be talking about um, some work I've been doing on bad apple surgeons. And this was sort of sparked by my interest in two cases in 2017 involving surgeons who were convicted for offences against the person. And as far as I can work out, this is the first time that surgeons had been prosecuted um, and convicted um, for non-fatal offences using the criminal law in England and Wales. And so I was just really interested um, in terms of how the, um, the usual exception under the criminal law for sort of consensual, reasonable surgery, how that was kind of conceptualised within the sort of exercise of determining, you know, how and whether these two surgeons were um, criminally liable. So, I mean, do you want me to tell you a little bit about the two cases? Well, I, yes, you can. But first of all, I'd be very interested um, in your views on the broader issue of how we should understand the role of the criminal law in health and medicine, really, whether it should be intervening at all. Um, you spoke about the exceptions um, in the area. But there's been a lot of debate in the literature about whether uh, there should be a degree of intervention and what sort of intervention by the criminal law in health and medicine. And I know you've been researching in the area, so would you mind addressing that for people who are perhaps unfamiliar with it? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's been a lot of attention on gross negligence manslaughter in the medical context. And, and of course, that's really previously anyway, the only way that we saw um, kind of, you know, doctors or surgeons who, who make sort of catastrophic and fatal errors being um, held accountable within the criminal law. I mean, there are obviously other ways that um, the criminal law can engage in healthcare. There's been, you know, quite a few doctors who've been prosecuted for sexual offences. But I think the difference between sort of doing something, you know, that kind of offence and gross negligence manslaughter and the sort of non-fatal offences that um, as, as might, they might apply to surgical harm is that within sort of surgery and within the sort of um, gross negligence manslaughter type cases, 
these are sort of doctors or surgeons who are sort of doing their job, you know, sort of on the face of it superficially in the way that they should be doing it in, in sharp contrast with a doctor who is, is found to be guilty of sexually assaulting a patient where clearly they are not doing their, their job in, in any sense of the word of, in terms of how they ought to be doing it. And so it's particularly difficult, I think, with both gross negligence manslaughter and non-fatal harm perpetrated in healthcare generally, but, but particularly in surgery, perhaps, to sort of look behind the sort of superficially professional medical interaction to see whether a criminal offence has um, been committed. And it's certainly under the common law jurisdiction, it is that focus, as you say, on fatal error mm. in healthcare settings. And certainly if you then look to the bioethics literature, but also the law literature as well, about this is you know troubling from the point of view of moral luck, that you can behave in terms of your conduct in a grossly negligent manner. Um, but if you don't actually, the, the patient doesn't pass away due to that sort of uh, grossly negligent um, uh, conduct, um, you're not facing a gross negligence manslaughter charge. Um, and yet the harm that was caused quite severe and the conduct was deeply problematic as well. Um, so that's something you're grappling with uh, in your current research is that sort of uh, the non-fatal um, harm that's being caused and where we're clear sort of, at least in the English jurisdiction about where the criminal law intervenes in that regard, but it's teasing out where that should lie or that sort of intervention should lie in non-fatal harm being caused in healthcare settings. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, there's been a lot of criticism about um, gross negligence manslaughter. Um, you know, our colleague Margot Brazier and others have picked up on this sense of moral luck and sort of um, using the uh, J.C. Smith example with the sort of weed killer in a lemonade bottle and you know if a father stores this dangerous chemical in in a soft drink bottle and a child um, drinks it and dies then clearly they're going to be potentially prosecuted for gross negligence manslaughter but if the child ignores it the child's fine there are no consequences but clearly in that situation the father has done exactly the same activity and it's the outcome that's absolutely everything. And that's obviously the case where you say, for example, in gross negligence manslaughter, if the patient is, you know, stronger or maybe younger and they survive, mm. then there are no criminal consequences. These prosecutions of um, Ian Patterson and Simon Brammel, as far as I'm aware, represent the first time that this kind of non-fatal um, harm has been um, the subject of a criminal prosecution. Well, you've mentioned these two cases. Um, would you uh, like to provide us with some background about Patterson and Bramhall and the circumstances which led to the prosecution? Yeah, so I mean, the more serious of, of, of the two cases is clearly um, Ian Patterson, and, and probably many people have heard about this because it was sort of all over the news around the time with comparisons drawn between Patterson and Harold Shipman. And he was found guilty of non-fatal offences section 20 in I think three counts and 17 counts of section 18 of the Offences Against the Person Act. Uh, obviously those offences are GBH wounding and more serious uh, offence um, under section 18 is, is GBH wounding with intent. And essentially what he did is he told many patients who thought they might have um, breast cancer he assessed them and he told them that they did have breast cancer when in fact they did not 
and he went on to perform um, unnecessary interventions on um, those mostly female patients. And in other cases, he performed a discredited procedure called um, a partial mastectomy, which is a sort of contradiction in terms really because mastectomy means like total removal of the breast tissue. And he had this kind of cleavage saving mastectomy that he thought was a good idea, but it's been entirely discredited within that area of medicine. And he was ultimately prosecuted after um, many, many patients within his NHS practice and his private practice complained about him. And he was ultimately only actually prosecuted in terms of the victims harmed within his private practice. And I think that was because there was a sort of a sort of clearer narrative available for the prosecution in that he was selling these surgeries. And so in order to sell more, he told people that they had cancer when they did not. And he was ultimately convicted and, and I think he was given a 15 year sentence, first of all. And then that was appealed by the attorney general. And now he's currently serving a 20 year prison sentence. In addition to the particular victims within the criminal prosecution, there are said to be many hundreds, potentially even more, um, victims from, from over a sort of decade of malpractice, both in the NHS and private practice. I mean, something that's raised by just generally um, in, in the Patterson case, but you would also argue in gross negligence manslaughter prosecutions in healthcare, arising from healthcare settings is that not only are you looking at the individual doctor in question, but they're situated within a system and within a professional culture. Um, now, there were, as I understand it, certain sort of uh, evidence put forward that the practices of Patterson and no doubt other doctors that may uh, find themselves in these sorts of situations where there was an awareness amongst uh, mm. peers and also on a, a more systems-wide basis or yeah. within the NHS trusts in which he was working and even in private practice as to problems with his treatment of patients. Yeah. So again, focusing on the doctor, appropriate in this case, he's been found guilty. But what would you say about these broader issues that are often raised by the medical profession as they're saying, well, the criminal law is not appropriate because there are systemic issues involved? And what would you say to that? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. The culture and the sort of um, context of that type of um, malpractice and abuse makes it possible for um, seen, particularly senior um, consultants and senior surgeons to sort of experience and enjoy, I think, a high level of autonomy. Certainly in Patterson's case, there were many attempts over the years to address some of the problems. So um, but the NHS hospital in particular, where he was working, knew that there were very serious problems with his practice. And there were some attempts to try and prevent him from, from um, doing certain things that were particularly problematic. And he managed to kind of shut everybody down. Um, it, it seems that, you know, he was quite a forceful character and working within a sort of hierarchical system where junior colleagues are afraid to speak up um, makes it possible for bad apples like Patterson to get away with um, malpractice for many many years I mean what's interesting actually about Simon Bramall's case so he was a surgeon who used he was a liver transplant surgeon and he um, during the course of um, liver transplants he um, branded patients new livers with an organ gas coagulator 
with his initials FB. Now, obviously, he wasn't performing this surgery alone. There were colleagues surrounding him and they saw what he was doing. And when this eventually came, it came to light because um, in a couple of the patients, their transplants failed. So the transplant organ was removed and replaced with another organ. And at, at that point, because it was quite a recent transplant because the liver regenerates, they saw visibly SB in these, the livers of these patients. And at this point, there was an investigation and some colleagues who'd worked with Bramwell said, oh, yes, we, we did know that he did this. And, and I think there was a senior nurse um, who'd, who'd said to him about it, well, what are you doing? You know, that, and he just said, well, this is what I do. And nobody reported him and it wouldn't have come to light at all, but for the fact that these transplants failed. So um, the evidence was clear. So now, once they realised that there was this branding of uh, mm. liver going on, what was the sequence of events in terms of holding this particular doctor to account? And then how did it end up within the domain of the criminal law? Yeah, well, so that's a really good question. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, there was, there was sort of less, because Simon Brummel just pleaded guilty, there was less kind of um, they didn't have to go through the process of finding evidence and more evidence in the sort of adversarial criminal court. Um, he just sort of held his hands up and admitted what he'd done and was um, given a suspended, um, I think he was fined and, and a record was put on his GMC registration, but he wasn't, he wasn't erased from the register. He was just sort of reprimanded. And I, I understand, um, you know, that the GMC thought that, you know, despite this um, abuse of patients and breach of trust, he was still deemed to be, you know, a decent surgeon. So um, as far and as that's way, based on what sort of evidence? Because I, I understand. So we often we forget here that often when the criminal law intervenes, it takes precedence. But often the GMC, as the regulator of doctors, may want to review particular doctors' conduct. Um, yeah. Normally, following criminal proceedings, the Bawagaba case is 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 a case in point mm. around gross negligence manslaughter in 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 a healthcare setting. Um, but uh, so I'm assuming there was a fitness to practice hearing. Would that be right, or is yes. it the review? Of yes, the no, there was absolutely. I mean, in terms of fitness to practice, that I mean, the branding of the livers was was by the sort of um, medical professionals involved was deemed to be not at all harmful. So it was only sort of psychologically damaging to the patients. I mean, one of the patients um, was said to be very traumatized by the knowledge that this had happened. And she believed that that had actually caused her liver to fail. Although the medical experts said that that's not the case and the liver fell for different reasons. And actually the, the branding of those livers didn't actually cause any harm to the patients. So therefore, in terms of his, I suppose, like, Gill as a doctor and a surgeon he was he was deemed to be sort of safe and fit to practice although obviously it's yeah. a horrendous breach of patient trust and and so on so it's interesting because uh, we're looking at say in the case of Bramhall in particular a, a particular conduct problem aren't we yeah, yeah. Uh, depending on how you view harm, and, and we may debate that, but setting that aside, um, again, it's interesting how, for example, a regulator may view a conduct problem as opposed to a harm problem. Um, yeah. That's a, an interesting, we may need to leave that for another mm. uh, podcast. Um, but equally, 
does it not mean when you're looking at a conduct uh, offence such as Bramhole, for example, or a conduct mm. problem, that the criminal law is an appropriate mechanism for addressing that, particularly in the context of non-fatal harm being caused? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think it's an appropriate, um, you know, application of the criminal law. Um, I mean, in both cases, obviously, Simon Bramhall didn't sort of physically harm um, any patients in the view of the experts who looked at his behaviour, but he demonstrated, you know, it was a serious breach of trust. It was a very arrogant, um, there was no consent. And um, obviously, you know, the, 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 the law tells you that if you, if you, you know, um, do something without a person's consent, then, then that's potentially a criminal matter. Whereas obviously with with um, Ian Patterson, he did seriously, mm. seriously harm many, oh, many so patients. You've got conduct and harm. Yeah, so you've got got conduct with Bramhall and mm. debatable, depending on with it, what perspective you may take harm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose with Bramhall, the fact that you know one of the patients has been, um, you know very emotionally affected by that and that might amount to some some sort of psychiatric injury yes, there is there is harm potentially um but certainly with Patterson you saw both aspects of you know an absolute um you know breach of patient trust and very serious physical harm and and, and it's potentially it seems very likely that some of the patients that um Ian Patterson didn't treat appropriately, for example, by giving them a, a partial mastectomy rather than a full mastectomy, then um, went on to um, have a recurrence of cancer that otherwise they might have um, avoided. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very likely that, that, you know, some patients have or indeed will die because of his um, malpractice. So um, in terms of the current research you're doing, where do you end up in terms of the role of the criminal law in relation to non-fatal surgical harm? Yeah, well, is there a place for it? Do we need to amend? Um, uh, what is your proposed way forward? So I think there is definitely a place for the criminal law. I think there are, you know, um, there are lots of challenges. So in, in this, the paper that you that I sent you, which I'm hoping will be published in Medical Law International, later this year. In this paper, I look at the, um, the, the issue of consent and the way that that was uh, dealt with by the court, particularly in um, Patterson, and also the concept of reasonable surgery, because as I'm sure students will know, um, that consent to non-fatal harm is only available in certain contexts, and one of those contexts is reasonable surgery. So I look at, well, what constitutes reasonable surgery? Clearly, you know, we know from the booming cosmetic surgery industry where, you know, non-therapeutic cosmetic surgery is, is absolutely acceptable, that surgery doesn't have to be therapeutic in a sort of clinical or medical sense, provided, you know, it, it has benefits that, you know, people want and provided that doctors are prepared to um, supply it. So I look at that those issues around consent and the sort of criminal requirements for consent and also the civil requirements for consent and the difference. And one of the things I argue is that the sort of the threshold for lawful consent in the criminal law is actually too low. Um, and, it, and it's too to sort of deferential to the medical profession. And I also look at the sort of the sort of I mean, there's a lots of gaps in the law and it's sort of limited authority about what reasonable surgery or, or even proper medical treatment is, because I think the, 
the, the single answer that you come to and, and um, did some work on this a few years ago with an edited book with um, Professor Sarah Favarg. The, the answer that you always come to when you're trying to look at, well, what, what does proper medical treatment mean and what is proper is, is what the doctors believe is proper. So it doesn't really matter if it's doesn't matter if it's harmful to the patient or the patient thinks that that's not what they you know consented to and not that's not what they understood was going to happen. What matters is well, what does the medical profession think? So there's a sort of bolemization of of you know these issues at, at almost every level. Of course, we've only really got sort of Doctor Dozen knows it best around information disclosure, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. Um, but really yeah, diagnosis and treatment. It is still you could argue Doctor yeah. knows best um, yeah. in yeah. terms of the Bolam Balitho standard, for example. Exactly. Um, and yeah. that also feeds in then, I suppose, you could argue to the intervention of the criminal law. And uh, uh, but wouldn't you argue though, or you look at the, both the civil and the criminal aspects around consent, and you'll say it's a low threshold. Uh, some of the broader debates in the criminal law is the, around harm that's caused um, and consent issues is seen as problematic anyway um, because of the possibility of the accused for example, raising a range of defences around consent um, and that we come from a civil law perspective, which is much more about empowering the perceived vulnerable person um, in, in the context of consent. So uh, did you find it interesting comparing the civil and the criminal law realm around consent, um, particularly in healthcare settings? Yeah, I mean, I sort of I touch on that, but I mean, what I found actually probably more more useful is kind of looking at consent within the criminal law in other in other offenses and how things have moved towards a more victim-centered approach so for example with sexual offenses yes um also I mean with with cases like um HIV contamination Yes. So, you know, the, the, the classic kind of um, Dika case where yeah. a woman consented to um, have, you know, sex with, with the defendant, but obviously didn't consent to being infected with a serious disease. And, and they were, you know, the previous the sort of authority going back years and years, I can't remember the name of the case, is, is that, you know, if you consent to sex, tough luck, you know, you get whatever you get. Whereas obviously that's changed now, and I think there's much more respect for the victim. And also through the sort of cases involving prosecutions for herpes as well. So I look at those sorts of examples of harm that on the face of it is, is sort of consent consented to, but in actual fact, the victim, you know, didn't realise what they were consenting to. And I'm, I draw an analogy between um, that kind of consensual sex, which leads to serious harm. And you know, surgery that on the face of it is consensual, but but also leads to serious harm. In terms of the decision to prosecute, no, and and this may not be something you de deal with in 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 too much detail. Um, but for example, do you think when the decision is made to prosecute um, a doctor? Um, we're looking at, at comparing Patterson and Bramhall in these situations around non-fatal surgical harm. Um, do you think there's a more of an interest in the conduct side of things or the conduct and or harm? Because they're two different cases. Did you notice any differences yeah. in prosecutorial approach or preparedness to prosecute perhaps based on a conduct as opposed to a harm and conduct case? There are only these two cases that have been prosecuted. So it's it's difficult to draw any sort of firm observations or conclusions about the, the 
the, the difference in the sort of prosecutorial attitudes to conduct compared to harm. I think I think conduct is probably crucial in one sense, though, because with I mean, with with Ian Patterson, he was sort of harming patients for, for well over a decade. And it was only when this kind of volume of victims and the weight of evidence became really just impossible to ignore that he was investigated and prosecuted. I mean, with Simon Bramall, it was, a, you know, there were only sort of, I think, two clear examples of the liver branding. But the, there's the, you know, very like, very likely um, sort of observation is that he did this to many more patients, but we'll never know because their livers are tucked safely inside them and you know will be healing anyway so um the, the fact that he was prosecuted with a sort of much smaller body of evidence and no physical harm suggests that you know conduct is 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 really a compelling reason and that kind of um example of completely breaching patient trust and doing something to patients without their consent is, is, is thought of as, as very serious. With Patterson, it was much more difficult, I think, for the police and, and CPS to gather the evidence because on the face of it, all these patients did consent to the surgery and he, he did the surgery that he, was that he told them he would do. I think it must have been incredibly difficult for them, given that we know that reasonable surgery is acceptable. It's an exception to the usual criminal law principles. And on the face of it, he was, you know, a hardworking surgeon doing what surgeons do. So I think the context is, is makes it so difficult for these cases to be um, investigated. So we've looked at the investigation thing. So where should we go with these sorts of prosecutions in the future? What what is your sort of what are your conclusions as a result of your examination um, of this issue? So I think my conclusion is that we we need to sort of rethink the basis of of real or valid consent in the criminal law to give um, to have a more patient centered approach that's more respectful of patients um, and demands more of the medical profession. And we also need to um, understand what reasonable surgery is so that when you have, you know, a surgeon, for example, who is, is not providing informed consent, but does nevertheless tell the patient just about enough to satisfy, you know, the sort of Chatterton and Gerson standard of, you know, information in broad terms, but then goes on to sort of seriously harm a patient by either botching the surgery or, or, or performing inappropriate surgery, then I think um, we need to look at the consent interaction and we need to look at the concept of reasonable surgery. And if consent is found wanting and the surgery is not reasonable and causes hot, serious harm to the patient, then I think you know, the criminal law is, is entirely appropriate. And in fact, it could, provide a useful deterrent to bad apple surgeons who might, you know, be more careful before they continue, you know, practicing in the way that that, that they do. Is it just uh, as we, a final point too, when we're looking around consent and you talked about context being important, and obviously on an evidentiary basis, that's important as well, particularly in the likes of Patterson, but is there not a gender dimension um, that yeah. we 
Do we need to take account of that? Are there other dimensions such as the situation of particular patients, for example, socioeconomic status, social determinants of health? Um, obviously in Patterson, it was very obvious um, that we're looking at uh, female women patients here, um, but in terms of rogue, uh, rogue surgeons or bad apple doctors, however you want to describe it, what are the other dimensions that we should take into account um, about the specifics of the patient? I, I know we're look, we talk about reasonableness, um, so that, that may be problematic, but we're looking at a particular context here, aren't we? Yes, um, yeah, and I'm really glad you reminded me about the gender tissue in particular. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but yeah, I think, um, I think there is definitely is a gendered issue and a socioeconomic issue as well. Some patients are more vulnerable than others in, in the context of these um, interactions. What I did find as well um, in terms of, I mean, obviously with Patterson, he was a breast surgeon, so you're inevitably going to get a vast majority of female patients. And in other areas of practice, which, which seem to be... Um, particularly dangerous, such as gynecology, you're inevitably going to get, you know, only female patients. Cosmetic surgery is another interesting one that seems to be particularly hazardous. And again, you know, um, women are more likely to be consumers of that type of private medical intervention. Um, so although I wasn't sort of looking at, at the gendered issues within um, my research on bad apple surgeons, it, it soon became apparent that women are far, far more likely to be victims of bad apple surgeons. And not only because gynecology is dangerous or cosmetic surgery is dangerous, but there's something else going on. And in all the cases that I looked at, so I looked at um, a range of cases that had involved GMC investigations. All the, um, all the bad apple surgeons were male which obviously, I mean, male is, um, surgery is a male-dominated specialism, but there were no female surgeons that I, that in, my, in my research that had been um, accused of sort of harming patients. And almost all the victims were female, even outside, even outside the obvious, you know, areas of gynecology where you're not going to obviously get the male surgeon. And so, I started to wonder whether, um, you know, this is another example of, of male violence towards women, and particularly within gynaecology. And there's been a lot of a lot of bad apple um, surgeons in gynaecology. Um, there were, you know, historically there were a couple of really serious cases: Rodney Ledward and another gynaecologist, somebody Neil, I forget his first name. But then recently, you know, we've got um, probably won't name names just in case, but there's at least three very, very serious examples of gynecologists harming many, many women, two of which have been the subject of a, a big group action in, in negligence. Um, and I just wonder, what, I mean, I, I have no idea and I don't have the skills to start to look into what exactly is going on. Why is it that, you know, gynecology seems to be such a very dangerous area of, of, of medicine? And why is it that, you know, bad apple surgeons seem to find themselves becoming gynecologists and then going on to harm so many women. And then more broadly, I mean, there are other examples. A doctor called Stephen Walker was eventually prosecuted for gross negligence manslaughter after the death of a female patient back in the 90s. But, 
he'd harmed and killed many other other uh, female patients, despite the fact that, you know, his wasn't a gendered um, area of medicine. And if we look at, I mean, the worst bad apple doctor ever, Dr. Harold Shipman, all 15 of the victims um, that he was ultimately found guilty of murdering were female, even though he was a GP and, and presumably had an equal number of male patients. So I think what we need to do is, is if possible, somebody with the expertise needs to research what, what this sort of character dimension here is with these bad apple surgeons who go into areas of medicine where women are their patients and then subsequently potentially their victims. No, I think that's a very interesting point. And, and as you say, quite rightly, ripe for further research um, in the area. Mm. And again, we only have to look at, for example, the vaginal mesh cases as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, breast implant cases. Um, and we're looking at broader problems uh, around medical device regulation as well. Um, but also decisions um, on the part in the context of the doctor patient relationship to proceed um, on that basis. We also have our, our data showing that there are certain high risk um, medical specialties for um, uh, clinical negligence claims as well. And they tend to fall in the surgical specialties. Um, and that may be because of the type of treatment or surgery they're undertaking, but it would certainly be worthwhile, uh, worthwhile to, to really drill down um, into any gendered issues that uh, and other um, inequality issues that may be mm. at stake. And I suppose it feeds into my final question, um, which is um, the rightful domain of the criminal law. You've clearly argued it, it, there is a place for it in, in yeah. the cases of non-surgical, sorry, non-fatal surgical harm. Mm. Um, but there is a broader range of issues here that the criminal law um, uh, is highlighting. Um, around professional culture, around perhaps gendered um, harms that may be caused, the role of the regulator. So is criminal law really leading the way or do we need to step back, do more research, but take a, a broader approach um, to the, the nature of doctor-patient relations that are, are bringing this about? Yeah, no, I mean, the criminal law, although I do think it, it certainly does have a role in these very serious cases, it's a blunt tool. And, um, you know, what we really need to do is, is, is look behind these cases and see why this is happening and why there is a tendency for, for, for doctors who are bad apples to get away with it for so long. And obviously there's, there's potentially, I think, a regulatory deficit there in, in the way that, you know, the medical profession is still, you know, fundamentally a self-regulating profession with sort of high levels of, of professional autonomy, particularly, you know, with senior doctors. I think, you know, it's probably not the case in many contexts and, and certainly with, with junior doctors, but there's a, there's a problem there with the sort of hierarchical um, systems and cultures that have, you know, been developed. Well, thank you very much. Very interesting discussion of uh, your research uh, in the broader area of the role of the criminal law in health and medicine. Thank, thank you, you very much, uh, Dr. Alex Mullick, uh, co-director of the Centre for Social Ethics and Policy at the University of Manchester. You've been listening to our podcasts and current issues in um, health, law and bioethics. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Current Issues in Health Law and Bioethics. This has been a production of Edinburgh Law School at the University of Edinburgh.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. For further information, check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Join us for the next episode where we speak to Compassion in Dying about the use of DNA CPR decisions before and during the COVID-19 pandemic. See you next time.